We present John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and André Moran as Monsieur Bouc in Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. The Orient Express is trapped in a snowdrift. Can you imagine what a disaster this is for me, a director of the company? And to make matters much, much worse, a man has been stabbed to death. Ratchet, the notorious murderer of the Armstrong child. My good friend, Hercule Poirot, is certain that his killer is still on the train and that he or she, or perhaps even two people, is somehow connected with the Armstrong family. So, Monsieur Parot, the murderer is most probably a member of the Armstrong family. Yes, Dr. Constantine, it is a strong possibility. But we have found no direct connection with the family, apart from the Princess Dagomirov. Who, in any case, would not have had the strength to deliver such a fatal blow. Mm. Which of the passengers have we not yet interviewed? Eh bien, uh, the Princess Dagomirov's maid, Hildegard Schmidt, Miss Dabenham, who seems to interest you so much, and the Italian, Foscarelli. I think you should interview the Italian. Very well, Monsieur Bouc. Since you are convinced that this is the kind of murder that only an excitable Latin could have committed, let us get it over with and talk to Signor Foscarelli. Of course I have been in America many, many times. You see, I am an agent for the Forte Cars, so naturally I go to America. It was there that I discovered my natural genius for salesmanship. Ernest Potter, you must have heard of him. He is very big in Detroit. He says to me, Foscarelli, he says, in all of my born days... Yeah, in your many journeys to the United States, did you ever meet the murdered man, Mr. Ratchet? Never, but I know the type. Very respectable, very well-addressed, but underneath it all, uh, something is wrong. Out of my experience, I should say he is a crook. I give you my opinion for what it is worth. You are quite right. Ratchet was Cassetti, the kidnapper. Huh? What did I tell you? You remember the Armstrong case? I do not quite remember. It uh, was a little girl, was it not? A terrible thing. But even in a great civilization like America... Did you ever come across any members of the Armstrong family? I come across so many people. In a week I sell 20 or 30 cars, which means at least 30 or 40 people. I cannot remember every single one. Now, tell me, if you please, your exact movements last night from dinner onwards. With pleasure. I stay here in the dining car as long as I can. I talk to the American gentleman at my table. Uh, Mr. Hardman. That's right. He sells a typewriter ribbons. Just imagine. And then I go back to my compartment. It is empty. The miserable English servant who shares it with me is away attending his master, the kidnapper. At last he comes back, pulling a long face, as usual. He will not to talk. Simply says yes and no. Uh, a miserable race, the English. He sits in the corner, very stiff, and reads a woman's novel. Uh, then the conductor comes and makes our beds. Which was your berth? The one on the top. I get up there, I smoke, I read. The little Englishman has, uh, I think, the toothache. He gets out a bottle of stuff that smells very strong. Presently, I sleep. Whenever I wake, I hear him groaning. Do you know if he left the compartment during the night? No, I do not think so. I would certainly have heard him. Did he ever speak of his master, Mr. Ratchet? But he never speak of anything. He is not a simpatico. He's a fish. Is that all? For the time being, yes. Thank you, Signor Foscarelli. Allora, good day to you, gentlemen. 
Well, my friend, what do you think of your principal suspect? I don't like him. He's a big mouth. Perhaps, but that does not make him a murderer. I do not think this is a Latin crime of passion. It is too far-sighted. It is a crime that shows traces of a cool, resourceful, deliberate brain. I think an Anglo-Saxon brain. Perhaps it is time that we saw the English governors, Miss Debenham. I'm afraid I have nothing at all to tell you. I simply went to bed and slept. Does it distress you very much, mademoiselle, that crime should have been committed on this train? I haven't really thought about it from that point of view. No, I can't say that I'm at all distressed. You are very Anglo-Saxon, are you not, Miss Debenham? You do not make a show of the emotions. I don't see why I should put on a fit of hysterics to prove my sensibility. After all, people die every day. They die, yes. But murder is a little more unusual. Were you acquainted with the dead man? I saw him for the first time when taking lunch in here yesterday. And how did he strike you? I hardly noticed him. Did he impress you as an evil personality? <laughs> I can't really say that I thought about it. Mm. You are, I think, a little contemptuous of the way I go about my inquiries. This is not the way it would be conducted in England, you think? Seems a complete waste of time. Whether or not I like Mr. Ratchet's features does not seem to me likely to be helpful in finding out who killed him. Do you know who this Mr. Ratchet really was? <laughs> Mrs. Hubbard has been telling everybody. And what do you think of the Armstrong affair? It's quite abominable. Disgusting. Now tell me, mademoiselle, do you intend to return to Baghdad after your holiday in England? I'm not sure. Why is that? Baghdad is rather out of things. I think I should prefer a post in London if I hear of a suitable one. I see. No, I thought perhaps you might be going to get married. I don't think that's any of your business. Tell me, what is your opinion of the lady who shares your compartment, Miss Olsen? She seems a pleasant, simple creature. What colour is her dressing gown? Kind of brownish colour. Natural wool. And your own? Pale mauve. You do not have a scarlet dressing gown, for example? No, that is not mine. Whose then? How should I know? You said that is not mine. Implying that such a thing does belong to someone else. That is so. Whose is it? I don't know. I woke up this morning at five o'clock with the feeling that the train had been standing still for a long time. I opened the door and looked out into the corridor, thinking we might be in a station. I saw someone in a scarlet kimono some way down the corridor. And uh, do you have any idea who it was? Was she fair or dark? I can't say. She was wearing a shingle cap and I only saw the back of her head. And her build? Tallish and slim, I should judge, but it's difficult to say. The kimono was embroidered with dragons. Dragons, just so. Will that be all? Yes, I need not keep you further, mademoiselle. Then I shall return to my compartment. Thank you. I do not quite understand, my friend. What were you trying to do? I was looking for a flaw. A flaw? Yes, in the armor of that young lady's self-possession. I wanted to shake her sang-froid. Did I succeed? I do not know. But why should you wish to do that? Well, she seems a charming young lady. The last person in the world to be involved in a crime of this kind. Oh, la, la, you must, both of you, rid yourselves of the obsession that this is a sudden unpremeditated crime. I suspect Miss Devenham for two reasons. The first is that conversation I overheard from the Taurus Express. You will remember, Monsieur Bouc, I told you that she used the words, when it's all over, 
when it's all behind us. But that doesn't make her a murderess. It could have meant anything. What is your other reason? Because she has just the kind of cool, intelligent, resourceful brain to have planned this crime. I'm sure you are completely wrong, my friend. She's certainly not the criminal type. Ah, well. Let us talk to the final name on our list. The princess's maid, Hildegard Schmidt. Uh, could you ask Pierre Michel to get her... Oh, no. There was nothing unusual about the princess sending for me during the night. She sleeps badly, and sometimes she is in pain. At what time would this have been? I do not know, monsieur. I was asleep. The attendant came to wake me. And you got up and put on your red dressing gown. What makes you think I have a red dressing gown? Mine is dark blue. In any case, Her Excellency would not have liked me to attend her in my dressing gown. I put on my clothes. You must forgive my little joke. <laughs> And uh, what did you do when you got there? I massaged her neck and shoulders, and I read aloud to her for a little while. But it was very cold in spite of the heating. I went to get the princess a rug from my compartment. I put it over her, poured her out a little mineral water, turned out the light, and returned to my own compartment. And did you meet anyone in the corridor? There was the conductor, of course. And what was he doing? He came out of one of the compartments, monsieur. Which one? Can you tell us? It was about the middle of the coach, monsieur, two or three doors down from Madame la Princesse. He nearly ran into me. When was this? When I was returning from my compartment with the rug. And he came out of the compartment and collided with you. In which direction was he going? Towards the dining car, monsieur. A bell began ringing, but I do not think he went to answer it. Ah, the poor conductor must have had a heavy night, first waking you and then running about answering bells. Oh, no. It was not the same conductor as the one who woke me. It was another one. Had you seen him before? No, monsieur. Do you think you could recognize him again? I think so. I think we should have all the conductors in here at once. I agree. If you would be so kind, monsieur Bougou. Yeah, I will see to it straight away. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been in America, Fräulein Schmidt? Never, monsieur. You have already heard, perhaps, who the murdered man really was? Yes, I have heard. The good God should not allow such things. But he has seen that justice is done. Tell me, is uh, this your handkerchief, Fräulein Schmidt? It has the letter H, you see. That is a lady's handkerchief, a very expensive one. It is hand-embroidered. It comes from Paris, I imagine. Do you perhaps know whose it is? I? Uh, no, monsieur. Uh, Par ici. Come this way, monsieur. <coughs> uh, <coughs> these are the three sleeping car conductors, Fräulein Schmidt. Now, will you be so kind as to tell us which is the one you met last night when you were going with the rug to the princess? There must be some mistake. Uh, what do you mean? None of these men is the conductor I saw last night. But these are the only conductors on the train. These are big, tall men. The man I saw last night was small and very dark. He had a little moustache, and he had a high little weak voice, almost like a woman's. I am certain of it. Surely someone must get here soon. They can't just leave us marooned out here forever. I said that we should hear again about this small, dark man with a womanish voice. It is the person Ratchet told Hardman to be on the lookout for. Mrs. Hubbard found a wagon D button in her room. But if this man exists, where is he now? Every part of the train has been searched most thoroughly. Then he can only be a passenger on the train or in disguise. But there is no man of that size or shape on the train. So... 
we have two mysterious strangers, the vagonry conductor and the woman in the red kimono. Who are these two people? And, incidentally, where are the vagonry uniform and the red kimono? We must search the passengers' luggage. They won't like it, but I don't see that we have any alternative. You are right. But I will make a prophecy. You know where they are? You will find the scarlet kimono in the baggage of one of the men, and you will find the vagonly uniform in a suitcase belonging to Hildegard Schmidt. But she struck me as being an utterly harmless ah, person. No, 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 my friend, that is not what I meant. If Hildegard Schmidt is guilty, the uniform might be found in her baggage, but if she is innocent, it certainly will be. Oh! Mad! What? what on earth is going oh, on? Lord. I am here, Mrs. Hubbard. What has happened? It's, it's horrible. It's just too horrible. It's in my sponge bag. What about your sponge bag, madame? What is in it? I can't tell you. It's too awful. I think perhaps, Monsieur Book, if you were to give Mrs. Hubbard a little cognac. Uh, oui, yes, but you. I'm a lifelong teetotaler. I never touch uh, spirits. Nevertheless, madame, you have obviously had a great shock, and I think you should... Well, if it's strictly medical. But of course, madame. Of course. Good. I shall go and inspect the lady's sponge bag. I would be grateful if you would accompany me, Dr. Constantine. But what about Mrs. Hubbard? Oh, cognac will work wonders. And I think it is most important for you to come with me. <coughs> Very well. Not too much, mind. Only a little drop. It is as I expected, Doctor. Take a close look at it. Mm. Could it be the murder weapon? A straight-bladed dagger. Stained, as you see, with blood. It is almost certainly the dagger which was used to kill Ratchet. It could account for almost any of the wounds. So, the sponge bag was hanging on the door handle. Hmm. hmm. How curious. We locked the door from the other side, you remember? Yes, that is true. It agrees, does it not? The murderer passes through this carriage. As he shuts the communicating door behind him, he feels the sponge bag, and he slips the dagger inside it. Then he goes out through the other door into the corridor. Mm, as you say, yes, that is how it must have happened. And yet, Mrs. Hubbard said she could not see the bolt because of the sponge bag. Mm. I can't possibly spend another night in that compartment. I'd rather sleep in the corridor. If my daughter could see me now, Madame, she'd be... no one could possibly oh. allow you to spend another night there. Your baggage shall be taken immediately to another compartment in the Belgrade coach. Uh, one moment, if you please. There is a little matter of routine. You permit, madame, that I make a search of your baggage? Whatever for. We are about to carry out an inspection of all the passengers' luggage. I do not need to remind you of your recent most unpleasant experience, your sponge bag. Mercy on us. Don't let me stop you, Monsieur Poirot. I just couldn't stand another shock like that. Go ahead. Search everything. Ah, this may well be a complete waste of time and effort. Nothing in Mrs. Hubbard's luggage, nothing in Hartmann's, nothing in the Princess Dragomirov's. And as for Colonel Abathnot... The pipe cleaners. ...which were identical with the one we found on the floor of Ratchet's compartment. But it is not in the Colonel's character to commit a murder in that fashion. And when you have said that, you have said everything. So, who is next? The Comte and Comtesse Antreni. Ooh, that may be extremely awkward. They hold diplomatic passports. Their luggage is exempt from examination. By the customs, yes. 
but a murder inquiry is different. All the same. We don't wish to cause complications. Now, do not distress yourself, my friend. It will not cause trouble for the Compagnie des Varonlis. The Comte and Comtesse will be reasonable. At any rate, let us make an attempt. Entre. Pardon, Monsieur le Comte, Madame la Comtesse. Pray forgive this intrusion. It is necessary for us to make a search of all the baggage on this train. In most cases, it is a mere formality, but I am afraid that it has to be done. Monsieur Bouc has suggested that as you hold a diplomatic passport, you may reasonably claim to be exempt from such a search. It is very considerate of you, Monsieur Bouc. But I don't think that I care for an exception to be made in my case. Oh, Monsieur le Comte is most accommodating. I should prefer that our baggage be examined, like that of the other passengers. You do not object, I hope, Elena. Not at all. Go ahead. Thank you, Madame la Comtesse. Uh, this is your suitcase? Yes, it is. Oh, <laughs> the label on it is wet. It must be something to do with the condensation. What else can you expect with snow on every side? It is a mere formality, mademoiselle, but uh, nevertheless it is necessary. Uh, with your permission, Miss Debenham? Oh, go ahead. Here are the keys. You are most understanding. Miss Olson? Oh, yes, of course, if you say it's necessary. Um, you have become a good friend of Mrs. Hubbard, have you not? Yes. We have moved her into another compartment in the next coach, but she is still very upset as a consequence of finding the dagger in her sponge bag. Oh. I have ordered coffee to be sent to her, but I think she needs someone to talk to. Oh, poor lady, of course I will go to her. It must have been terrible shock. I will take some smelling salts. Uh, they are there. Could you pass them? There you are, mademoiselle. Thank you. <laughs> My case is not locked. Why did you send her away? I do not understand you, Miss Devon. You wanted to get me alone, wasn't that it? Mademoiselle, we have a proverb... Equis excuse sacus. Is that what you were going to say? You must give me credit for a certain amount of observation and common sense. For some reason or other, you've got it into your head that I know something about this sordid business. This is your suitcase? Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Well, I will not beat about the bush. I shall ask you to tell me the meaning of certain words I heard you speak when you and Colonel Abathnot got out of the Taurus Express to stretch the legs, as you call it, at Konya. You said to him, not now, when it's all over, when it's behind us. What did you mean by those words, Miss Demenham? Do you think I meant murder? It is I who am asking you. Those words had a meaning, but not one that I can tell you. I can only give you my solemn word of honour that I have never set eyes on this man, Ratchet, in my life until I saw him on this train. And you refuse to explain those words? If you like to put it that way. The words were private. They had to do with a task that I'd undertaken. A task that is now ended? What do you mean? It is ended, is it not? Why should you think so? Let me recall you to another incident. There was a delay to the train on the day we were due to reach Istanbul. You, normally so calm, so self-controlled, were very agitated. I didn't want to miss my connection. But the Orient Express runs every day of the week. Why was it so important to be on this particular train? You don't seem to realise that one may have friends awaiting one's arrival in London, that a day's delay upsets arrangements and causes a lot of annoyance. Ah, it is like that. Yet now, when we are trapped here in the snow, your manner is quite different. You are 
calm, philosophical almost. You do not answer, mademoiselle. Don't you think you're making rather a fuss about nothing, Monsieur Poirot? <laughs> it is perhaps a fault with us detectives. We expect the behavior to be always consistent. Have you finished examining my luggage? Oh, thank you, yes. You still refuse to tell me the meaning of those words, when it's behind us? I have nothing more to say. Ah. It does not matter. I shall find out. Good day, Miss Devlin. And I found nothing in McQueen's luggage or Masterman's or Foscarelli's. Which leaves us only with Fräulein Schmidt. Yes, monsieur? Uh, forgive us disturbing you, Fräulein Schmidt, but we are making a search of the passenger's luggage. Of course. Come in. Perhaps we could start with the suitcase on the rack. As you wish. Uh, I will get it down. Um, do you have the keys, Fräulein Schmidt? It is not locked. <gasps> to leave a god! What on earth is that doing there? You remember my little prophecy, Monsieur Bouc? The wagon lee uniform. Oh, but that is not mine. I did not put it there. I've not opened that suitcase since we left Istanbul. Do not be agitated. We believe you. I am as sure you did not hide the uniform as I am sure you are a good cook. You are a good cook, I know. I believe so. All my ladies have said that I am. How could the uniform have got there? I will tell you what happened. This man, the man you saw in the Vangoli uniform, comes out of the dead man's compartment. He collides with you, and of course he had hoped that no one would see him. He must get rid of the uniform. He watches you go into the princess's compartment, and he knows that yours will be empty. He slips in, removes the uniform, and puts it into your suitcase. Yes, that is how it must have happened. And then? Ah, that we have to find out. Oh, you see here? A button is missing. Mm -hmm. The button that was found in Mrs. Hubbard's compartment. And in the pocket, a conductor's pass key. Here is the explanation of how our man was able to go through locked doors. With this key, he could go anywhere. Mm. One mystery remains. This scarlet kimono. We have not found it. Hey, it is indeed a mystery. Haha, <laughs> well, there is nothing more to be found here at any rate. Thank you, Fräulein Schmidt. And uh, do not worry yourself. I do not see how I can help it, monsieur. We may as well go back to the dining car. We know now all that we can know. We have the evidence of the passengers, the evidence of our eyes. We need now to turn over all these facts in our brains to use our little grey cells. Perhaps you might ask Dr. Constantine to join us. If you think it necessary. Most certainly. I will be with you in a moment. I, um, I need the cigarettes from my compartment. Ah, someone appears to be taking an interest in us at last. An army aircraft. Well, <laughs> that should make him take notice of us. He's dipping his wings. Well... At least they know that we are here. Oh. 
It makes it even more urgent to clear up this business before the police arrive. Ah, Monsieur Parot. You cannot imagine what I found in my compartment, neatly folded up on top of my suitcase. A scarlet kimono embroidered with dragons. <laughs> it is a challenge, a defiance, and Hercule Poirot will take it up. But where on earth does one start? We found nothing in the passenger's luggage that we were not intended to find. And as for their evidence, he told us nothing at all. Oh, yes. There were one or two points of interest. Oui, oui. I didn't notice anything. Do you remember, for instance, what young Mr. McQueen said about his employer, Mr. Ratchet? He was hampered by knowing no languages. Oui, what of it? You do not see? When the conductor Michel answered Mr. Ratchet's bell, didn't Ratchet reply to him in French? Bravo, doctor. He said, ce n'est rien, je me suis trompé. I heard the voice myself. You heard the voice? But you mean it may not have been that of Ratchet? Ah, now I understand your reluctance to accept the evidence of the broken watch. Already at 23 minutes to one, Ratchet was dead. And the voice you heard was that of his murderer. Oh, no, no, no. Let us not go too fast. And do not let us assume more than we know. Let us approach the case from an entirely different angle. How was the murder intended to appear to everybody? You mean... If we had not run into this note. Exactly, Doctor. The murder would probably not have been discovered until we reached the Italian frontier, which would have been early this morning, but for the snow. And the evidence would have been given to the Italian police. Mr. McQueen would have produced the threatening letters. Mr. Hardman would have told them that Ratchet had told him to be on the lookout for a little man with a high-pitched voice. Mrs. Hubbard would have been eager to tell how the murderer had been in her compartment. The button would have been found. You mean that the murder was planned to look like an outside job? Exactly. What time was the train scheduled to arrive at Broad? At two minutes to one in the morning. Then the assassin would have been presumed to have got off the train at Broad. Somebody would probably have noticed a strange little wagon lee conductor passing down the corridor. No suspicion would have been attached to any of the passengers. The murderer would have been the man Hardman had been told to look for. But where does all this get us? We are no nearer to finding the killers. Oh, no. We are very close now. We must first distinguish between the clues which were deliberately planted for us to find and those which were not. The pipe cleaner and the button were part of a little charade, but the handkerchief and the burnt letter were not. But why was the letter written in the first place? You have perhaps read the novel of Robert Louis Stevenson, Treasure Island? When I was a child. Do you remember the black spot? A notice of execution. A warning that a death sentence had been passed. And the letter was destroyed so that no one would connect the killing with the Armstrong family. But we have been over all this before, and uh, with the exception of the Princess Dagomirov, there is no one even remotely connected with the Armstrong family. That is what we are intended to believe. But the evidence of the handkerchief may prove otherwise. But surely, since that person knows that we have the handkerchief, she would do anything in her power to conceal her name. Aha, uh -huh. you would make quite a competent detective, Doctor. <laughs> and there is one person on this train who has done just that. But tell us. Oh, please, please. No, you must preserve your patience until after dinner, my friends. I have observed that she is always the last person to leave the dining car. The dining car? Oh, mon Dieu. Thank goodness you have reminded me. I must talk to the chef. Pardon, madame. I think you have dropped your handkerchief. You are mistaken, monsieur. 
That is not my handkerchief. Are you sure of that, Madame la Comtesse? Perfectly sure. And yet it has your initial, the letter H. I do not understand you, Monsieur. My initials are E.A. I think you are not telling me the truth. How dare you! That was why you concealed your real initials on your passport with a spot of grease. And why you covered your initials on your suitcase with a new label. A label which was still wet when I examined your luggage. Your name is Helena, not Elena. You are Helena Goldenberg, the younger daughter of Linda Arden. Helena Goldenberg, the sister of Sonia Armstrong, whose child the dead man Ratchet kidnapped and murdered. In part four of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat and Monsieur Bouc by Andre Moran. Mrs. Hubbard, Sylvia Sims, Miss Debenham, Francesca Annis, Dr. Constantine, Peter Polycarpu, Foscarelli, Frank Coder, Fraulein Schmidt, Linda Polan, Miss Olson, Kate Binchy, the Count and Countess Andrigny, David Thorpe and Cyril Jenkins. The music was composed and played by Michael Haslam. Murder on the Orient Express was dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. <laughs>